Um, she said that I had to keep it short today. <laughs> so, so, here we go. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be partial. Amen. Let us pray. Is that a popular sermon? What can I say? <laughs> We're going to Taupo by the sea. <laughs> no. No. There's not enough space in my truck as it is. I've, I've discovered, I think I've told some of you this anyway, but I've discovered that recently that the reason that you have to own a boat when you go on holiday is not for the boating. It's so you can put all the stuff in when you go. Okay. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we lived in Harare, I can guarantee you that on any visit to town or a shopping center, we would encounter some of these young men and sometimes young ladies, and they were called street kids. And as their name suggests, that's exactly where they lived. They, lo they lived rough, and I mean very rough, on the streets. The poorest of the poor, with no family, but perhaps some others like them. And they were really a symptom of the AIDS epidemic in Africa. Um, and that's something that um, we're not familiar with here. You know, imagine um, in a room like this, what, there's maybe 100 people in here. Uh, the AIDS epidemic in Zimbabwe would mean that 25 of you would have AIDS. Okay? And that meant that lots of kids ended up with no parents. Um, grandparents ended up looking after them. They couldn't always make do. So these kids ended up on the streets. And um, they made a living mainly by guarding your car when you were away shopping because the other nice little thing that happened a lot there was that your car either got broken into or stolen. And um, for a few, few dollars, they would look after your car and they all had their, their little patch. And uh, they, were, they were sort of a mixed blessing actually because while they really would guard your car, um, they would also curse you most professionally if you didn't give them enough money. And they were very dirty and they were smelly and they were very wild, and I didn't like them much because they made me uncomfortable because I could see there was this gap between us in terms of material wealth. Why was I like this, and why, was, why, why were they like that? And here in New Zealand, we almost never see these things because, you know, there's this, this wonderful thing called the benefit, and I know that we, we all have feelings about it, but the fact of the matter is that the shelter of the benefit does mean that pretty much everyone has got some sort of roof over their heads, food in their stomachs, and some sort of clothing to wear. Poverty is largely hidden from us, and we don't think about it very often. And we are comfortable, probably too comfortable. As we return to the book of James today, we're going to find that he wants to challenge our comfort and our attitudes towards poverty by using them as an example as we continue to study this topic of partiality. So let's turn now to James chapter 2. And uh, we're going to start reading at verse 1, although we've already um, done verses 1 to 4, but it just always seems a bit awkward to start in the middle of nowhere, really, especially when there's some, some context there. Okay. 
My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised, those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will shown, be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, hopefully some of you might remember that we dealt with the first part of this chapter by discussing how God is impartial and how we ought to be reflecting this attribute to the world around us as an example of God's character. This is what we would call the principle. Then we have an example of actual human behavior, which we see in verses 2 to 4, and how that falls short of God's standards. This week we will go on to look at James's argument against acting this way and his answer for it. So, let's start by examining the argument. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James starts his argument with a very powerful word. Listen. Listen. My experience of arguments is mostly that the ears are firmly shut, the arms are waving, and the mouth is wide open. This is not the ideal stance for learning. We need to attend with open ears and eyes. And you know, this also means that our hearts should be open too, to receive, so that we might be convicted to change. This verse perfectly demonstrates how different God's standards are to ours. Some time ago, I was invited to a sales pitch for what amounted to a pyramid scheme. And uh, the way that this was done was I had a phone conference with a fellow in Australia. And he came up with, breathlessly came up with this information that the surefire way to make pots of money was endorsed by none other than Donald Trump. This was supposed to be impressive. After all, in the world's eyes, a super wealthy man like Donald Trump enjoys all kinds of respect and advantages that lesser men do not. But for God, none of that is important. For him, both rich and poor stand exactly on the same level. No amount of money will bring you 
even a fraction of a millimeter closer to God. And in just the same way, poverty cannot separate us. Note that there are three different periods of time, or three tenses in this verse. First of all, God has chosen, past tense. Our salvation is irrevocably connected to the sovereign will of God. And that is a will that was exercised a long time ago. In Ephesians 1, we read, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So he chose us before he even laid the foundation of the world down. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. God's past decision has a present consequence and purpose. Okay? He made a choice a while back, and he intended for something to happen now. He wanted us to be rich in faith. Those whom God has chosen will bear the fruit of faith, and not a poor harvest, but a rich feast today. And what is the value of faith? Well, it's the character of, of Christians. It's our character. We embrace it, we receive it, we govern ourselves by it, and we live by this doctrine and submit to the law and government of Christ. It is our trust and our treasure. Finally, there is a future aspect to God's choice, that his chosen people will become heirs to the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's one thing to look forward to inheriting some property or some money. After all, be a most unusual person who doesn't. Actually, I'm thinking about that horrible teapot that Aunt Mary had promised me. No. But these things will only partially satisfy us, and they have no meaning when we die. We can't take any of that stuff with us. God, on the other hand, promises his children an eternal and imperishable inheritance with a quality of life that we can only dream about now. I'm not going to go into them right now, but there are many, many verses that demonstrate God's choice of and support for the poor. Whilst the poor are singled out here for special treatment, there are some things that we ought to be really clear about when we're looking at this verse. Note that James is not saying that only poor people or all poor people are chosen, but that many poor people are selected by God. And this being the case, we ought to be careful about how we treat a poor person. A rich person is not by any means disqualified from salvation. But, let's face it, the worldly comforts that they enjoy can easily obscure their need for God and divert them from their service. If we stop and think about that, I think lots of us will recognize the evidence of those in our own lives. Well, if we do, ask the question, what are we doing about it? Lastly, the kingdom is not promised to the poor simply because they are poor. Now that James has set up the basis of the argument by exposing the standards, what should be, he then goes on to point out the reality. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Most of the readers of this letter must have been well aware of the many instructions and, well, frankly, threats for that matter, concerning the right treatment of the poor, which are contained in what we know as the Old Testament. Hopefully, they would have understood this as a picture of a loving character of God and the example that they ought to follow. Moreover, many of those to whom this was originally addressed 
would have been poor themselves. If we study history, we'll see that first century Palestine was dominated by a very small number of increasingly wealthy landowners and merchants. And what they enjoyed doing to make themselves more powerful, well, they would find ways to force people off their land with the result that they would end up in deep poverty. So these are the people that James is talking to. He says, but you, you have dishonored the poor man. You know, wow, that's pretty dumb, you might be thinking. But isn't that just like you and me? Often when we find ourselves in what we consider to be some kind of special circumstance relative to others, we lose sight of what's important. You know, I'm a Christian, so I'm special. I don't have to think any harder than that. James 7, 3 to 5 is well known, but we are often guilty as charged. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, James is not afraid to point out why this behavior is pretty dumb. First of all, if God has chosen the poor for special attention, then oppressing them is directly opposite to his commands. It's not clever to take God head on. In fact, it's pretty obvious we shouldn't try to oppose him in any way. Secondly, the people who are being honored are not those who help us, but those who deliberately hinder us for their own profit. And lastly, these oppressors also want to damage our reputations. They're not just happy with taking away everything we own. They actually want to ruin our reputations by attacking what we stand for, Christ. The phrase in this uh, passage, um, by which you are called, is a Greek translation of a Hebrew idiom, and it means literally, which has been called on you. And it relates to a very, very close relationship, even ownership. And it's often found in the Old Testament to describe the bond between Yahweh and his people. And this, of course, is very appropriate, since we are talking here about the bond between Christ and his Christians. Every New Testament instance of being called relates to God's saving call through which sinners are saved. And an example of this being called is uh, in Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, so we're actually talking about people who are being saved there. James is confirming his audience as believers. The first part of James's argument is very human and practical. He's just saying, listen guys, you're giving the most respect to people who want to steal everything you have and badmouth you as well. That's the basis of his argument. But there's also a very specific piece of heavenly legislation to consider. Reading from James 2, verses 8 to 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble on one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, 
but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. We've seen that partiality is, first of all, opposite to the character of God. Secondly, inconsistent with God's choice of and concern for the poor. And thirdly, plain foolishness in human terms. This should be enough to convince any of us. But James wants us to very clearly understand the full measure of our error as he goes on to explain how this partiality is not just folly, but it's actually a serious sin. The manner that James lays down this ruler of the law for, for measure is interesting. Remember that James is a Jew, and he's writing to guys, to Jews, who would be as familiar with the Old Testament law as a glass of water. So in making this identification with royalty, he's doing two things. Firstly, he's establishing the author and thus the seriousness of the law. It comes from none other than the king and is not just any royalty but the king of heaven. This is important because Jews would know the law or the Torah as a combination of instruction from God in the Pentateuch and also a whole lot of complicated instruction from an interpretation from various rabbis. It was all molded together. Okay, so sometimes a bit of confusion about what came from people and what came from God. So James is making sure that everybody understood there was no human hand in what he's saying. It's royal law. And secondly, he's drawing attention to the new covenant that Christians enjoy. Don't look back for instruction, he is saying. Recognize your new condition and obligations. And while we are talking about this Jewish perspective, it's one of the reasons that James goes to some trouble to explain how breaking one law constitutes a failure in obedience to the whole thing. Because for some Jews, adherence to the law was a bit of a balancing act. Okay? The way they saw it was, I obeyed this one, that's great, that's plus one, but I failed in this one, so that's minus one. So then he'd have a look at his list and say, oh, what's the score so far? Okay? And that's, <laughs> that's not a great way to go. Sorry, says James, it isn't like that. Okay? Just to try and use a modern example, if I got a nail and I stuck it in a, in a tire tube, okay, the air would start to leak out slowly, and sometimes I could keep going for a while. But if I tried to use the same nail to puncture a hole in the window, what would happen? The whole thing would smash. Failure would be instant and catastrophic. And that's exactly what it's like with breaking the law. If you try to puncture it in one place, the whole thing collapses. And uh, while giving instruction in this context in Matthew 5.48, Jesus lays out the standard that he's looking for very directly. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Since perfection is the standard, I don't think there's much room for negotiation. And that's what we're also seeing James establish here. There's a bit of scholarly debate over the meaning of this term royal law. Because he goes on to quote laws from the Ten Commandments a little bit later, is James talking about the Old Testament law as a whole and term, terming it royal because it was given by the kingdom of heaven? Well, it doesn't look like it because this idea is weakened by him connecting the royal law a little bit later with the law of liberty in verse 12. So it doesn't make sense that it would only be an Old Testament thing. 
It seems more likely the specific Christian association is intended because the Greek word that James uses for royal is a relative of the word used for the kingdom. And we're talking about the kingdom of God that we're all looking forward to being part of and uh, that he uses earlier in, in verse 5. And another line of attack, attack would be that in verse 8, a specific commandment to love our neighbors is quoted. So it's tempting to say that that specific injunction must be the royal law. But the language used is very inconsistent with New Testament practice because single commandments are never ever described in that way. So the best solution is to understand this term royal law as representing the whole will of God for Christians. At this point, I'm going to stick my head into the lion's mouth a little bit because it's relevant at this point to consider the question of how the Ten Commandments relate to Christians today. The question is this. Are Christians under the law or are they not? It certainly seems that James has been enforcing the Ten Commandments on Christian believers because he specifically refers to the Sixth and Seventh Commandments which forbid murder and adultery. Also, he summarizes the last five commandments in the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yet to put believers under the law as a rule of life contradicts other portions of the New Testament, such as Romans 6.14. You are not under the law, but under grace. The fact that Christians are not, not under the Ten Commandments is distinctly stated in 2 Corinthians 3. Why then does James press the matter, matter of the law on believers who live by grace? To start with, Christians are not under the law as a rule of life. Christ, not the law, is our pattern. Where there is a law, well, there must also be a penalty. The penalty for breaking the law is death. But Christ died to pay the penalty of the broken law. Those who are in Christ are therefore delivered from the law, and its penalty. But certain parts of the law do hold their value forever. For example, idolatry, adultery, murder, and theft. Well, they're just wrong. They're just plain wrong. And that's the same for believers and unbelievers. Furthermore, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the epistles. The only one that isn't repeated is the one concerning the Sabbath. Nowhere are Christians ever told to keep the Sabbath because that commandment is actually ceremonial not moral. The nine commandments which are repeated in the epistles are not given as law but as an instruction in righteousness. God isn't saying if you steal you're condemned to death or if you commit an immoral act you will lose your salvation. Rather what he's saying is that you are saved by grace. Now I want you to live a holy life out of love for me. If you want to know what I mean by a holy life, well, have a look at the New Testament. What do we find there? Nine out of the Ten Commandments repeated. Obviously, we aren't meant to think that they have been replaced. In fact, the teachings of Jesus actually call for a higher standard of conduct than the law required. So James is not really putting believers under the law and its condemnation. He is not saying... If you show respect of persons, you are breaking the law, and thus you are condemned to death. What James is saying, as believers, you are no longer under the law of bondage, but you are under the law of liberty. Liberty to do what is right. 
The law of Moses required you to love your neighbor, but it didn't give you the power, and it condemned you if you failed. Under grace, you are given the power to love your neighbor, and you are rewarded when you do it. You don't do it in order to be saved, but because you are saved. You do it not through fear of punishment, but through love of him who died for you and rose again. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will be rewarded or suffer loss according to this standard. It won't be a question of salvation, but of reward. The expression, so speak and so do, refers to words and deeds. In speech and in act, believers should avoid partiality. Such violations of the law of liberty will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. So far in this passage, we've seen a real-life example of partiality at work. We've heard some very direct argument about why we shouldn't behave in this way, and now we're going to see the answer, what we are expected to do in verses 12 and 13. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now the Greek construction of verse 12 is illuminating. Firstly, the way that the beginning of the verse is constructed emphasizes that the expected speaking and doing should be an ongoing work. Okay? In other words, continue speaking and continue doing. Don't stop. This isn't a, oh, today I feel like a bit of speaking and doing, or maybe this afternoon I'll do a bit of speaking and doing. No, we're expected to do this all of the time. Secondly, that word um, will be, who will be judged by the law of mercy, it means it has a sense of about to be. Okay? The judgment is imminent. It's not distant. Um, in just the same way that I ended up finishing the sermon at about 11 o'clock last night, I left it to the very last moment, we tend to be more worried about instant correction, or we should be, than something that's going to happen somewhere off, I don't know, tomorrow, or next week, or next month. But that's not what uh, James is telling us. No, we don't know when God's going to call an end to things. He might do it in the middle of my next sentence. It might be another hundred years. We don't know. But we ought to behave as though it were going to happen in the next sentence. So, that might sound like something to be scared of. But let's remember what we've just heard because it is about the law of liberty. We don't do it in order to be saved, but because we are saved. We do it not through fear of punishment, but through love for him who died for us and rose again. That's our motivation. When James speaks and says that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, there are, of course, implications for both believers and unbelievers. For the merciless unbeliever, and I want to be very specific about that category, because the one commentary I saw kind of tarred all unbelievers with the same brush. And that's unfair, because we know that there are many, many good and well-behaved unbelievers in the world. But for the merciless unbeliever, <laughs> there's a lot to be afraid of. Because we can see that God is really serious about mercy. And he's going to be especially angry about those who haven't been merciful and also are not covered 
by Christ's sacrifice. And as believers, we should know that believers have not escaped judgment, but we have escaped punishment. And that that judgment will be based on our conformity here on earth to the standards set out by God in His Word. What we do here will determine the extent of our heavenly reward. To exercise mercy throughout our lives here on earth is fully consistent with the character of God. On one hand, we know Him to be righteous, requiring punishment for wrongdoing. On the other hand, we experience His great love and mercy in putting Jesus on the cross to die for our sins. In Micah 7.18 we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He does not remain, retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. God delights in mercy. And this is why James ends the section with this wonderful statement that mercy triumphs over judgment. I believe that the tension, the way that we see this tension resolved between God's righteousness and His mercy, and that it's resolved in favor of mercy, is something we have every reason to be eternally grateful for. Imagine if God was more righteous than He is merciful. I believe every one of us would stand condemned. But it's the other way around. And so... I can think of no reason at all why any Christian should not be inspired to develop an impartial and merciful character. After all, it's one of the principal aspects of our Creator and Lord. He commands us to do so. He has led by example, and as the ultimate cherry on the cake, well, He offers us a fantastic reward for obedience. How can we not follow? And there are so many opportunities every day. You know, mercy is not necessarily found in the dungeon. It's found in the traffic. That fellow in the lowered skyline with the wicked sounds cuts us off. And it's found too in the supermarket aisle where Nana is dawdling to check out the prices. That's where we can find mercy every day. We should seek it out and practice it at every opportunity so that we can delight our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, it gives us a rope to hang on to that doesn't budge. So that we know what is required of us. Lord, I just pray that from what we've seen of your word today, we'll be challenged to change our lives as we go forward from this time. And that because of that, Lord, people would see you in our lives and that you would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Um, as Tim said, there's...